Whether you like their political stance or not, I personally do not. The Nike brand is uh, iconic in this country, isn't it? A worldwide company, powerful company. They represent so many well-known athletes. And of course, they're known for their logo, that swoosh, right? But since 1987, there's been a little three-word slogan that they put with their, their uh, brand that has been almost as well-known as that little swoosh itself. And you probably know the three words of which I speak. Just what? Do it. Do it. Yeah. I was in Dick's Sporting Goods just yesterday looking for a shirt that said that. Couldn't find one, but on the wall, there's a big old sign that says, just do it. it uh, it's well known for their brand. It was created by a marketing company called Wyden and & Kennedy. And at first, nobody in the company liked having this extra slogan connected to the logo. And so Dan Wyden simply just said in a marketing meeting, he said, look, let's just try it for one round of ads. And if nobody likes it, we can just drop it. Well, to their surprise, the whole world responded. They got all kinds of letters and comments. Somehow this little phrase, just do it, resonated in the hearts and minds of athletes around the world. Several years later, their VP of global marketing, David Grasso, was asked about it. And he said, well, we don't actually believe in slogans here at Nike. Instead, what we found to be the most effective is inviting people to join us in what we believe in and what we stand for. And what we stand for is to serve and honor athletes. I think that's why David said this phrase, just do it, has had such an impact, impactful, uh, or such an impact over the last 30 years and continues to do so. It's genuine and it speaks to our core mission. Well, that phrase is definitely one of confidence and action and it's actually the title of my message to you today because David was a man of confidence and a man of action. As we've seen in David's life over the last six weeks, his primary purpose was to serve and to honor Almighty God. He's most known for two things in his life, his greatest victory and his greatest failure, isn't he? What was his greatest victory? We talked about it a few weeks ago. I had the privilege of preaching that passage in 1 Samuel 17. David versus what? Yeah. And then, of course, last week, Pastor Jonathan talked about his greatest failure, David and, yeah. But there's so much more in between those moments in his life. But as I look at the life of David, one thing that is surprising to me, really, is that in the midst of all his great accomplishments, his greatest failures came at the end of his life, not the beginning. David's life, we could review it at great length. We don't have time to go into too much detail, but let me just review briefly what we've been covering the last six weeks. We've talked about how he was the son of the great grandson of Ruth and, and Boaz, how he's the eighth son of his father, Jesse, how his father basically ignored him <laughs> amongst the other seven sons and, and uh, even didn't even think about him when the prophet Samuel came to their house to anoint a king. And of course, David ends up being the one who was anointed. He was a shepherd. He was born in Bethlehem, a talented musician, so talented that they hired him as a part-time intern to go to the castle to play for, uh, 
for King Saul in his troubled days, right? He was a mighty warrior, a great leader. And of course, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we see that moment when he burst onto the scene in front of all the people of Israel. And he, as a teenage boy, defeats this giant called Goliath. His life would never be the same after that. And then, of course, we remember him running from Saul for 15 years. And in the midst of that, more people keep coming to him because he's a great leader. He's eventually anointed the king of Judah, while Ishbosheth, the other son of King Saul, was king over Israel. He became king over Judah at 30 years old, and then seven years later was able to unite the two flags, and Israel and Judah became one nation. He conquered Jerusalem, made it the capital city. He finally conquered the Philistines after years and years and years of war. He returned the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He expanded the kingdom tenfold under his leadership, from 6,000 square miles to over 60,000 square miles. He established extensive trade routes between other nations. He wrote over half of the book of Psalms. He was the great, sweet psalmist of Israel, as he refers to himself in 2 Samuel. And he spiritually led the people to hunger after God. This is a great man. And now, today, we've come to the end of his life. And like I said before, it's interesting to me that his biggest failures were towards the end of his life, not the beginning. I think it's because, like Pastor Jonathan said last week, he got comfortable. Comfort leads to complacency. And complacency leads to a lowering of the guard. And when you lower your guard, it opens you up to the enemy and for temptation to enter in. And that's when we fall. In fact, just as a side note this morning, can I just give you three main reasons why I believe we fail in our biggest moments? It's because either we're too tired. When you're too tired and you haven't had enough rest, you are susceptible to temptation uh, more than others. Also, when you've come off of a great victory, when you're just a little too high, when you're too tired or, or you're too high coming off of a victory, you are susceptible to temptation greater than other times, I believe. And then the third is when we're too comfortable. Life is just good. We lower our guard. And I think if you didn't hear anything else I have to say to you this morning, I would simply say this, just based off of some things that have happened this week that I'm well aware of in our own church body. Can I just tell you something? Please lean in and don't, listen, don't miss this. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. What is Solomon, the son of King David, what does he say in Proverbs 4, verse 23? Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from that. And what happened in the life of King David is he got comfortable. And in just one 20-second moment of wrong decision, it changed his whole life. And so we see all the troubles that come from that. So guard your heart. It is those who guard their heart who end up finishing strong. So we come to the end of his life. And Acts chapter 13 has a great verse of scripture where Paul is delivering his first sermon actually. 
And Paul goes through this history of the children of Israel, and he gets to the point where he's talking about David as king. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 36, Paul says these words, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. Now, we're going to come back to that verse in just a few moments. But the truth is, David wasn't perfect, was he? He was certainly not without his failures. And then, as we heard last week, those failures set off this domino effect for the rest of his life. Constant chaos in his own household, <laughs> partly because he had eight wives and multiple concubines. And I'm telling you, that's just a recipe for trouble, right? <laughs> David allowed his love for women to be his downfall. I don't think it's any accident when the women were singing, Saul has killed their thousands and David has killed his ten thousands, that he, he perked up a little bit when he heard those words. That was his downfall. By the way, all of us have a weakness of some sort. For David, I believe it was women, and he paid dearly for it. But even though he had this brief moment in his life where his sin nearly destroyed him, we were reminded again last week that his heart remained bent towards serving the Lord. He has this undeniable, authentic love and passion for the Lord. And of course, you see it coming out in all these different psalms. So when trouble came, he continued to trust the Lord. Even when his own son Absalom overtook his throne in a, in a family coup and, and David had to flee his own palace and head back out in the wilderness, even in the midst of all that, he's trusting and he never loses faith in the Lord. He had learned a lot by this time in his life. David teaches us so much what to do and what not to do. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm teaching uh, people that are younger than me certain things, I remember more about what not to do than what to do. And we learn a lot from David. David shows us how to worship in the book of Psalms, doesn't he? he? He shows us what it is to have bold and courageous faith with his battle against Goliath. He, he shows us how to honor our leaders as he stays faithful and doesn't kill Saul when he had multiple opportunities to do, though, even though Saul was trying to kill him. David shows us how to repent in Psalm 51, and he shows us how to talk to God. Look at the Psalms. They're, they're raw. They're, they're honest. And he shares his frustrations with God as well as his praise. And then, of course, David teaches us how to wait on the Lord. For 15 years, he was running from Saul, living in caves in the wilderness, and waiting to become king, of which he had been anointed as a teenage boy. And then it took another seven years for him to unify both nations. So 22 years in all before he was finally the king that Samuel anointed him to be. 22 years. Maybe that's why in Psalm chapter 27, he was able to pin these words. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Wise words from a man who waited 22 years to become king. So we reached the end of his life, and we've learned so much from him, but he showed us how to live. Now he's going to show us how to die. <laughs> We're witnessing today in Scripture the final moments of one of the greatest persons to ever live. It's the end of a great era. And as he lay dying, there's three different points in Scripture, 1 Kings 1 and 2, 2 Samuel 23, that all speak of his last days and his final words. But there's one other passage, 1 Chronicles chapter 28, which I chose as our passage today, that really speaks to us 
with his final words publicly. You see, there was a, another coup that happened from another son, Adonijah. You read about it in 1 Kings chapter 1, where another son is trying to take over the kingdom. Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan come to David as he's laying in bed on his deathbed. And they said, look, this can't happen. You said Solomon would be anointed king. We need to make this happen now because Adonijah is taking over the kingdom. And so David declares Solomon as king. And in a private ceremony, they, they anoint him as king. And he takes the throne. But just a little later on, there's a public ceremony. And David, even though he's ill and he's weak and he's frail, is able to get out of his bed, get dressed in his kingly robes, and address a great assembly that they pull together of all the leaders of Israel. And that's the moment that's happening in Colossians chapter 20, and in Chronicles chapter 28. First Chronicles 28. David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officers of the divisions that served the kings, all the commanders of the thousands, the commanders of the hundreds, and the stewards of all the property and livestock of the king and his sons. He pulls them all together with the palace officials, all of his mighty men, all of his seasoned warriors. And then in verse 2 of chapter 28 of 1 Chronicles, it says this, Then King David rose to his feet. What a powerful picture that is. This man has been laying in bed for months. He's sick, he's frail, he's dying. And yet he summons enough power and strength to rise to his feet and address his people one more time. And he says, hear me, my brothers and my people. And then he begins to tell how in his heart, his final achievement, he wanted to build a temple, a house for the presence of God. And God says, I'm not going to let you do that because you're a man of blood. I'm going to save that job for your son who will be a man of peace. In fact, his son named Solomon actually means peace. It's a derivative of the Hebrew word shalom. And so God says, you're going to have to wait, but I want you to get all the stuff together so that you can set your son up for success. And so he begins to tell that story and that scenario all the way through verse 8. And then... Uh, he gets to verse 9 where he begins to address his son. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. When I read these last words of King David to his son, I thought, you know, of all the things he could have said, this is what he chose to say. And I thought, well, man, there's a great outline here, but it simply says, know God and then serve him and then seek him. And all week long, I've been wrestling with, that, that sounds so trite. Is, it, is that it, really? And it may sound sort of simplistic to you as well until you begin to just take a few moments out of your day and really think about what it is to really know God, to really know God, to understand His greatness, to comprehend His power. What does it really mean to know our Creator? You know, of all the humans who ever walked on this earth who knew God, David surely would be at the top of the list, right? I mean, he knew God. He knew 
God because he spent so much time with them and his heart chased after the glory and the goodness of God. It seems like the older I get, the less I feel like I know. It, it, actually, <laughs> it actually makes it easier for me, really. I'm, the more I learn, the more I realize how ignorant I really am about so many things. But thank God for search engines like Google and stuff. All this information about everything in the world is at your fingertips, right? But if you want your life to really count, you don't have to know a whole lot of things. You just need to know a few really important things and powerful things. And the first thing you need to know is God. To know God is the ultimate purpose of your life. Consider this. Listen to what John Piper said. There is an absolutely sovereign, transcendently pure, self-existing, self-sustaining, incomparably beautiful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-governing, all-upholding, all-defining, infinitely valuable, all-satisfying God whose purpose in all creation in all redemption, in all of history, and in all of culture, is to display His glory for the everlasting, ever-increasing enjoyment of His redeemed people. Hmm. His name is Yahweh. It means I am. Not I was, not I hope to be. No, I am. He is ever-present and ever sure and ever true. The mind of finite man just cannot fathom this infinite God. That's why David writes, when I look into the heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You made mankind just a little lower than the angels and the heavenly beings, and you crowned man with your glory and honor, and you've given mankind dominion over the works of your hands. You put everything else under his feet. Even with all of the greatness and the holiness of God, his favorite creation is you. And what he desires from us is that we know him and that we worship him. I mean, could there be any greater privilege than this? This is what David is telling Solomon, his son, above all else, above everything else, know your creator. Because in knowing God, you'll find purpose, you'll find wisdom, you'll know forgiveness, you'll experience grace, and you'll understand the meaning of life. Solomon's name is a derivative of this word, shalom. It means peace. If you have no God, you have no peace. But if you know God, then you know peace. It's a paradox of our faith, isn't it? To know God and then yet continually pursue after Him. To fear His awesomeness and, and yet find total peace in His presence at the same time. And the thing that gives us the confidence in the midst of all that is His unfathomable love for us. Love that we don't deserve and that we certainly couldn't earn. So how do you get to know God? What does David mean when he says to his son, know God? Well, you get to know God the same way David did. Three simple ways. By spending time alone with him. How much time do you spend with God? 
Do you spend any time at all with him? Do you spend any time at all during the day or during the week just considering the greatness of God? What he's done for you. What he can teach you through his word. I love what Rick Warren said one time. He said, look, if you really want to know God, you need to do three things. You need to detach daily. Take a moment each and every day, preferably in the morning, honestly, 15, 20 minutes and just get alone with God. But then he said this, withdraw weekly. Pick a time during the week to get away for maybe a couple hours. Shut the noise off. You, 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 it's really hard to have a quiet time with the Lord and text messaging your friends at the same time. Just get, just shut it off for a minute. Get alone. Withdraw weekly. And then Rick Warren said this, and abandon annually. Man, pick a time during the year for two or three days where you can just shut off social media, shut down the stuff of the world, and just get with God. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it will change your life. It will absolutely change your life. And this is, of course, is what David did every day. He had all that time in the wilderness, all those time watching those sheep. And, and then, of course, he's now king, and he's a little more busy, and stuff is going on. And we know what happens. So get to know God by spending time alone with him. Also, get to know God by worshiping him. Man, we learn so much about worship from David, don't we? And it's not just about a song, folks. It's a lifestyle. I love what A.W. Tozier said. He said, Christians don't tell lies. They just go to church and sing them. Oh, Lord, my God, when I awesome, how great you are. Do we really believe that or are we just singing words? When the eyes of the soul look out and meet the eyes of God looking in, that's when worship starts. It's you shooting an arrow of love straight to the heart of God and Him responding to your praise by blessing you. It's always amazing to me how worship is to God and yet it's for us. David teaches us these things. So get to know your God by spending time with Him. Get to know God by worshiping and of course get to know God by reading His Word. Did you know that in the Hebrew language, there is no difference between knowing and doing? Knowing is doing, and doing is knowing. In other words, if you aren't doing it, then you really don't know it. You're just pretending. So don't claim to know God unless you're truly striving after knowing him. Be like David. Chase after the heart of God. It's so simple, and yes, so many of us don't do it. So can I just encourage you? Just do it. Next, he tells his son to serve God. Know the God of your father, he says in verse 9, and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. There's the formula. How do you serve him? With a whole heart and with your willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and every thought. You know, it's really hard to do something without thinking about it first, right? That's why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we have to have our minds transformed, renewed. What happens in your mind is so important. What you place into your thought life is so important. 
And one thing is very true, the more you get to know God, the more you're going to want to serve Him, because the motivation of your heart will be more and more about pleasing your Savior instead of yourself. And you can serve God in just about every capacity imaginable, right? Any place you find yourself, at any point of the day, you can serve the Lord. You can serve Him at work, unless, of course, the very nature of your work is sinful, right? Like dealing drugs or something. But you can serve God in all your relationships, too. And you can serve God in your neighborhood, on the golf course, at work, at play, at dinner, driving down the road, in every conversation, every dollar you spend, with all that you own, in all that you do. Serve the Lord with gladness. Bring Him the glory in all things and through all things. That's what he says in Psalm 100, another psalm that David wrote for us. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with thanksgiving. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His, and we are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. By the way, you don't have to wait till Sunday morning for that, folks. That's an everyday, all-day-long thing. And man, the more you do it, the more fun it becomes. Listen, serving God is not boring. It's an adventure, and it's life-changing. So do it with your whole heart and with a willing mind. To know God and to serve God is to live a life of worship. So choose this for yourself. Serving God is a conscious and a willful decision on your part. And surely Solomon, at some point growing up, saw his daddy doing this on many occasions. So parents, be careful how you live your life. Your kids are watching. And it's not a matter of what you do for a living. It's completely a matter of who you do it for. I love the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he said this over 60 years ago. If it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, then sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets so well that the host of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, now there goes a great street sweeper. He swept his job well. So whether you're in construction or you're in business or you're in finance or you're a street sweeper or you're a garbage man or you work at Walmart as a greeter or no matter what you do, do it all to the glory of God because he's worth it and he is worthy. In whatsoever you do, do it wholeheartedly as to the Lord and not unto men. So serve God with your whole heart. The more you do this, the happier you will be and the more pleased with you that God is. Here's the problem. So many of us just don't. So here's the message again. Just do it. It will change your life. The last thing he says to Solomon is seek God. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. Listen, God is not hiding from you. He wants you to know him even more than you want to know him. So here's the question. Are you seeking after God in your life? I love what Tozer said again. We need never shout across the spaces to an absent God. He is nearer than our own soul, closer than even our most secret thoughts. Are you seeking God during your days, in your hard days, and in the worst of days, double down and seek Him all the more? You know why? Because God does His deepest work in our darkest hours. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 12, verses one and, uh, chapters 1 and 2, not chapter 12, but Romans 1 and 2. 
He reminds us that God has given us creation and a conscience. He's already given us these things to know that he is real and that he's there and that he's present. But then on top of all that, he gave us Christ. And Christ came not for any other purpose than you. What does he say in Luke 19? He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Those are the words of Christ. Now, as we close today, I just want you to see how all of this ties together with the life of David. David says in 2 Samuel, in some of his final words in chapter 23, in verse 5, he says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Just like he did with Abraham, God established a covenant with David despite his failures and his sin. And then you see in the last chapter of 2 Samuel, and it's interesting that this is the last thing you see in that book because the last four chapters of 2 Samuel are not in chronological order. But the last thing we see in 2 Samuel is another sin of David. He does this census, and it disappoints God and upsets God. And when they get the numbers back from Joab about how many people he's got in his army and all this stuff, you read the chapter, you just read the story, you discover that suddenly David realizes he has sinned by doing this. And so in order to make an atonement for those sins, he goes over and he sees this man named Moroni threshing wheat, and a prophet named Gad says, David, buy that piece of property from Arana and make a sacrifice to the Lord for the atonement of your sin. And at that point, David is broken, and so he goes up to Arana and he says, look, I want to buy this property from you. And Arana says, no, I'll give it to you, man. You're the king. And David says, no, I need to buy it from you. I'm not going to do a holy sacrifice to the Lord from something that costs me nothing. And so he buys this piece of property where this man is threshing wheat. By the way, when you're threshing wheat, you're separating the wheat from the chaff. Kind of a great picture there too. But he's threshing this wheat. He buys this property from this man and offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And at that point, God finally stops punishing the people of Israel for the sin of David. Now, it's a powerful moment because it points to this covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Then in 1 chapter Samuel, verse uh, chapter 7, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, God makes this covenant with David. And then God sacrifices his own son in just a little bit later in Scripture. And what you realize is that the very point where Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 22 is the very same property that David purchases from this man Arona. And that very same property is the same hill upon which Jesus Christ would die several hundred years later. Do you see how God just tied it all together? And it's simply amazing to me that despite the sin of mankind, even the man after God's own heart, that God weaves this beautiful scarlet thread throughout history to accomplish both his will and his plan for salvation. God is so good, isn't he? So do you see the significance? David is not just the sweet psalmist of Israel and their greatest king, but he's also the central character between Abraham and Jesus. God places David at the center of Israel's history to establish the very place at the very center of the world where God would save the world from its sin by the sacrifice of his only son, Jesus. 
And by his resurrection, God has placed Jesus on the throne of eternity, establishing this everlasting covenant that he made with David and with Abraham. So go back to that verse that we started with today, Acts chapter 13. I didn't read the whole verse in the whole passage. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Why? Because David was a man who sinned, just like the rest of us. Verse 37, but he whom God raised up, now who would that be? Jesus. Did not see corruption. Why? Because Jesus lived a sinless life. So let it be known to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, that through this man, Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. All the historical, physical, genealogical, biblical, and even mathematical evidence is here. He is risen. He is our one and only Savior. And he's your only hope for salvation and eternal peace. Do you know him? I mean, really know him like David knew him. Do you serve him? I mean, really serve him like David served him. And do you worship him? I mean, really worship him like David worshiped him? Do you seek after him? Mm. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, David wrote, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If it's a matter of if you'll follow Jesus, then why not try him? And if not Jesus, then who? If it's a matter of when you'll follow Jesus, then why not now? If not now, then when? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to begin to know him and serve him. It's a decision that requires an action, but it will change your life forever. Do you know him? Do you serve him? Do you seek him? In the words of David to his son, be strong now and just do it. Just do it. Let's bow our heads together. As we close this service today, I just want to know, are you seeking after God? Do you realize the significance of the correlation between the life of Abraham and David and Jesus? God tied it all together so beautifully for us. And by the way, that same Christ who suffered and bled and died on that same hill is going to one day return to that hill and come back and get us. But in the meantime, the question is simply this. Do you know him? If you don't, you can surrender your life to him today and begin a relationship with God Almighty that is life-changing and everlasting. Anybody? Anybody like that? Are you here this morning and you're not sure if you know God? If that's you, would you just slip your hand up? I just want to see who you are. There's nobody looking around. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Anybody like that? You don't know God, but you sure would like to. My guess is most of you in this room, you know God, but the question is, are you really following after him? Is there anybody in this room today that would simply admit, yeah, you know what? I know him, but I don't know him like I should. Anybody like that? Sure. So many of us. Well, I just want to remind you as we close this service, this, this is an altar. And this altar is built with stairs, not just so that we can be raised up so you can see us a little easier on the platform, but also so that you can come and pray. And I just want to invite you to come. Come and kneel before the Lord and just... Surrender yourself all over again to him as we close. 
And I just thought today, maybe as we close this sermon series on David, the best thing we could do is just sing a psalm of praise to him like he wrote so many of them. There's an old hymn that says, how great thou art, then sings my soul. And I thought as we close today, maybe we could just stand to our feet quietly and sing that little chorus of praise to him. And as we do, the altar is open if you want to come pray. We have pastors down here at the front if you want to take one of them by the hand. But if you want to pray, just walk on past one of these pastors and come to the altar and kneel. We're not going to bother you. This is between you and the Lord. But at the same time, in the heart of David, with a heart that wants to know him and seek him and serve him, can we just lift our hearts in praise to him and sing to him? Come on. Oh, Lord, my God, when I am awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe display then sings my soul my savior God to thee how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul my savior God how great thou art, how great thou art. Do you know him? Do you serve him? Will you seek after him this week? Detach daily, withdraw weekly, abandon annually. Get to know your God. The more you do, the more it will change your life. But here's what you do. You just do it. God bless you guys. Have a great day. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.